Hi, hi, hi! Welcome to episode 18 of the Amusius Story Podcast. We are back from a semi-unplanned, month-ish long hiatus. I was performing a one-man show in the San Francisco Fringe Festival. Our last episode that uh, ran a few weeks ago presented a couple of songs that were written toward that show. Uh, clips also are going online of the show, so you can check all that out at amusia.org. But it took me offline for a few weeks because I was working on it, and also my wife is due to bring forth a new and baby-like life on December 1st. Hence, we took a little holiday. The project of this entire podcast has been to create a season of 24 episodes, including today's that leaves seven of them to go. So today's episode is a grab bag, a sandwich of three pieces, a funny one, a not funny one, and a third funny one, uh, which we'll run today to compensate for lost time and just to revel in some variety. Story number one, moving right along here. This is a continuation of a great saga that was begun in this podcast months ago. Uh, you don't have to have heard the first one. This story is very stupid. Uh, it makes no difference if you know what it's about or not. But it is a new installment in the epic tale known as the Magus and Quams. The Magus and Quams, episode 29. Before the Magus and Quams lay a daunting quest... The sinister forces of Baunok were gathering amongst the frozen steppes of the east. Brown Orc, master of the Baunok, was now in possession of the enchanted obsidian blade. The Magus and his companion, that barbarian swordsman Quans, were the last hope of the dappled Vale. At the close now of three long weeks adventuring, Traveling from the dappled vale and across the Valmuthian crags, beyond the Vulcanae mountains and through the pits of Evanblast and the swamps of Despond, the magician and swordsman now found themselves at the very foot of their destination. The frozen steppes of the east, where Brown Ark and his minions held sway. From here, the journey must needs continue by foot. First, therefore, they would have to park their horses. The gnome operating the first step of the east horse parking lot hobbled out of his booth to greet the adventurers. Are you here for a day-long adventure or an extended campaign? He asked. Uh, make it four days, the magus replied. Uh, Alrighty, I'll be two bits each then, uh, plus a fodder charge of one copper farthing, the magus grunted. He always found this part of an adventure rather awkward. Well... He whispered to Quans, Pay the man, or gnome, pay the gnome man. Quans groped haplessly through his leather bags. Uh, I'm down to three bits, he muttered. What? How? The mages exploded. Did you blow all your coins on mead like I warned you not to do at the inn? Uh, not mead, Quans muttered. Digging down the side of a boot in a hopeless search for an extra coin. It was more because of all the wenching. Simpleton! The mages nearly shrieked. And then, more courteously to the gnome man, we'll need to barter. A jeweled dagger, perhaps? Well, yes, that would be fine, the gnome said encouragingly. There's a lovely pawning store about 30 miles back in Rivengard. Rivengard? The mages was despondent. Can't we just, you know, offer you a nice little jeweled dagger here, now, between friends, as it were? Oh, I'm afraid not. Exact change only. The regulations are strict. You wouldn't believe the punishments. I, I could be turned into a mouse. Quans interjected. Our people depend on us in the dappled veil. Brown Orc, 
possesses the obsidian blade. Time is of the essence. Well, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, sir, but we are all standing about two feet apart. And if you don't mind my saying, sir, you should have thought of that before all that wenching business. Now, uh, Rivenguard is just 30 miles behind you. You could both be back here first thing in the morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and jingling with the correct change. The mages and Quans took in a deep breath together and turned their horses around. The end of episode 29 of the Magus and Quans. Okay, so that was exciting. This next story has a slightly more serious twist. The organizing theme was what it's like to live with anxiety and guilt. All right, so that's heavy, right? Uh, anyway, the story is called Reunion, and on the back end of this story, we'll close with a funny song. It's a small private practice that my partner and I left Morgan to launch three or four years ago. The impetus is that our group have been way too deep in commercial real estate, even after 08. And Richard and I realized tech entrepreneurship with the right focus was our market's direction, Joseph said. Which excited Cherry. You know, our oldest is looking at mechanical and software engineering at Stanford. Software and delivery are the way this world's going to be saved. That's what Bruce says, and we're so glad he's going to be part of that. Tom couldn't believe he was here listening to this shit. Then he couldn't believe he was telling himself he couldn't believe that. I mean, how pathetic is it to carpet people's success? Let them preen on, let them win at life. Let them have a great evening here in the Ramada Inn Chichester room. What mattered is managing somehow for him to stay alive in this conversation and, and, and convince Sherry from 10th grade geometry and Joseph from those long hours in the lunchroom and maybe even convince his own wife Liz standing next to him that in 20 years, he'd gone on to be a worthwhile person. But had he? Had he? This moment here in the Chichester room was every day consolidated. You know, a, a desperate scramble to put it over on somebody for five more minutes that he was a worthwhile person. This just happened to be one of the five minutes when it was going spectacularly poorly. How on earth did he let Liz talk him into coming into this thing? You missed your 10th reunion. I want to meet the people who knew you when you were younger. Jerry, I think your son is picking a wise direction, but if he'll ever like taking a vacation, maybe I can't recommend it. What an asshole. And not Joseph, but, but me. Tom actually told himself this. Me, I am speaking of. The thing Tom hated, couldn't stand, couldn't bear, couldn't live with another damn minute of, was Tom. Why'd he roll down the window and gotten in a fight with that bicyclist? I mean, yes, it only lasted 20 seconds. Yes, it had happened three days ago now. But that image, the, the bicyclist's image of him, Tom, an over-angry, paunched, middle-aged motorist shithead taking to the nth degree, even if only for 20 seconds, a dispute about crosswalk timing? Was that who Tom was? The guy the bicyclist thought Tom was? Yes, probably yes. A prick, barely scraping from one minute to the next, trying to trick people. Humbly, not vaingloriously, but trick them all the same, into thinking he was worth living among them here on this earth. How does a man go on with this grief when he could just die? They say mindfulness would help, some meditation, let it all go. Step back from these feelings, which even seems like great advice. But does a man have the right to let go of guilt when he has hurt or threatened others? How's it going, everyone? Hope you're having a great reunion. You just heard Let's Do It Live. Coming up, another original of ours, Not a Strong Swimmer. 
you would think with his mind racing like this, that Tom would be able to find his way into this conversation, a remark, something. Did he lack for words? But it had been four long minutes now, and the last thing from his throat had been a strange, deep squawk. The beginning of a statement about the need to prepare the way for the jobs impact of software-driven cars, but all he'd gotten out of his throat was that squawk. Ugh before his words were paved over by Sherry, saying something decidedly less prescient. Liz, Tom's wife, was squeezing his arm. This, he knew, meant some combination of why aren't you convincing these people you're more worthwhile? And, yeah, they're a little tooly. But mainly the former. And in her simple hand squeeze was even a tinge of pity. I know you find it impossible to put yourself over in these social situations, and I know that means you can't really put yourself over, period. But just get something together, Tom. We've been married eight years, and the likelihood that I am leaving you is getting pretty slight by now, so do me a favor get your shit together like a man. A lot for an arm squeeze, but couples develop this kind of communication in marriage. Oh yeah, forget Uber. In five years, the taxi's gonna be driving itself. And that is where we've been focusing, finding the right small shops where that software is being written. What a prick. No, Tom was not thinking about Joseph, who had always been a blowhard, but who now was creating the future through robotics technology that Tom had to admit A, sounded impressive, B, if it were as impressive as it sounded, would put a billion people out of work, which C, would be a good thing, maybe, if there were social support for that kind of change in society, which there surely will not be, and D, is in any event nothing this man's creating himself, but is just financing to be done by 24-year-olds who work 120 hours a week in Palo Alto, but are entranced by astronomical salaries barely covering their more astronomical rents, and more importantly, by a trampoline and free burritos at work. But not even that. Joseph programmers are probably all half-homeless Bangladeshis. Jesus, he wanted to weep over his chicken, the, the, the kebab in his hand, hovering over a plastic plate. How had that chicken spent the few weeks of its horrible goddamn life? And what kind of world was this? And when would this hour be over? And what were Joseph and Sherry, and indeed Tom's own wife Liz, thinking of him by now, since he had after all done nothing more in this conversation than croak, about six or seven minutes ago? And then an extraordinary step. You ought to say something. Liz leaned right into his ear and whispered this. Wake up. Be part of the conversation. Tom felt a certain deadness overtake him, as if the blood were running right out of him into a pool on the floor. Okay, I could say something. It didn't go off, Joseph, Tom croaked, completely cutting him off in the middle of a remark about the difficulty of returning to VCs for third rounds of funding. I thank God for that every day. I, I'm pretty certain I never wanted it to go off in the first place, but you should know it. It did not go off. This was not given any verbal reply, but Tom could feel himself being asked, Why? What the fuck are you talking about, Tom? So he continued. On Thursday, October 17, 1996, I duct-taped a pipe bomb under the cafeteria table, right where you and Eric and the other guys would sit every day, and it was time to go off 20 minutes into lunch hour. I was, I was an idiot, and I still still am, and it did not go off. I acted completely alone. I thank God it was a dud, and I have never been able to live with myself then or since. But what's odd is, I, see, I brought a couple of guns to school, and I was going to use them as soon as I heard the explosion. 
when there was never any explosion. I peeled the pipe bomb back off from under the table that afternoon. Barely dared go in there after seventh hour, but I did. And I took the bomb and my guns home. And I never killed myself. I've... <laughs> well, obviously, I, I've lived with that to this day. With the fact that I never killed myself. As he had begun this speech with its first words, Tom had convinced himself it might be a catharsis and unburdened. There was no telling what would come now. But the first thing he could think in the dead, vacant silence of Joseph and Sherry and his wife Liz was, this is so much worse than if I had kept my mouth shut. feeling Michael may wish to apologize for the music in that song. Um, I kept telling him it's got to be a terrible sort of bar band doing a reunion at a small high school, just an awful band with boring, repetitive music. And he's like, do I have to? And I said, yes, boring and repetitive. And he kept putting filigrees on it and doing something fancier and like strip it down, make it bad. So uh, he would uh, probably not like to be represented by the songs in that piece, which were actually the same song played at two tempos, if you didn't notice. So I, in all fairness, can apologize about everything else in the story. That was a fun twist at the end. Yeah, fun. Which brings us now to our grab bag closer. Uh, this is a song called Bachelor Party, recorded during my bachelor party, just about four years ago now. I had had a lot of fun recording Amusia pieces with Michael Shockey at our friend Terry Carlton's studio, Bones and Knives. He runs it out of his home in San Jose. I thought a great thing to do with five guys would be to book three hours and make a song. So I wrote the lyrics in the car on the way down to the studio to San Jose. And those lyrics are joyously irresponsible, but are intended as a satire of, rather than celebration of, bro-y, fratty behavior. Saying that probably isn't necessary, but I am putting this story into our podcast right in the middle of the uh, Donald Trump campaign era, and would like to disassociate myself as far as possible from grabbing by the pussy style, rape culture, blah blah blah, and etc. So with that diligence now due and done, here is a big dumb song called Bachelor Party. So amazing to have 
I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with to you. Love the church. Every day for a you for poor, and me for together forever. I love you so much. I just couldn't live without you, baby. I do. It means so much that you said yes. Teach, baby! Expensive. Afraid that check is gonna bounce. Bachelor party. Drinking and driving is such a blast. Bachelor party.